Thank you, Pastor, and you to everyone who's organized this. And I know that, especially for tomorrow, lots of hands were involved to make sure that we have a good lunch here. Thank you for everything, and thank you for the church and for hosting it here um, at this facility. Um, I would also like to thank Pastor Jerry. As he said, we have known each other for a while, and we have experienced these conflicts together. We have experienced them together probably since actually 2012. That was when we met. We met in June 2012 when we visited Morningstar Baptist Church in Meeker. We became friends during that year. And then we had joint experiences of conflict from the fall of 2013 onward. The fall of 2013 to date. And there is a verse of scripture that reminds me of my relationship to Pastor Jerry Jackson. And it is found in 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18. At the beginning of David's conflicts, his warfare, the first one that's recorded is with Goliath. And after that, it became not only David against the enemies of Israel, but it was David against Saul. But David had one friend. One friend, yes, one friend, who uh, he says in 2 Samuel that the love of Jonathan was better than the love of women. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, the following. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And now, mind you, Jonathan is heir to the throne of Saul. But it says in verse 4, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. During these conflicts, our souls have been knit together more and more because we both have two things. One, we have a love of the truth of the word. And number two, we have a sound mind. We see reality, we see the evidence of what people say and what people do, and we say, this doesn't match reality. They're not telling the truth. They're not telling the truth about the events, the circumstances, the conversations, and they're not telling the truth about what the Bible says. And the more this happens, the stronger the friendship has become over the years. Now, this has culminated in one major conflict that happened this year. Some of you know about it. Some of you know about it a little bit. But I want you, we both want you to ask us, because if you just have bits of information, you may not think that we handled it in a godly way, in a biblical way. But if you know exactly what's going on, both what has happened from that other party side and what we said and what we did and what the Bible says about it all and how this conflict is persisting because this man it loves to goad 
or poke the bear. And he's trying to continually provoke us even after he said he doesn't want anything to do with us. But he still is trying to poke the bear. Now, we are not mentioning names throughout this except one name in terms of local people. And the reason is most of you know who the name is. His name is Jared James. And a lot of what we say here is exemplified in him. He is one of the most vile and dirty and nasty pastors or supposed Christians you could ever meet. Now, he doesn't come across that way, but if you know the reality, the truth of what he has said and done, it is absolutely true. There is no exaggeration in my words, none whatsoever. If you have the evidence and you know what Scripture says, you would come to the same conclusion. Now, we're not going to be mentioning him throughout, but many of the things we say here are applicable to him, but also to many other people that we have experienced in the past. Now, you may say, well, why do you have to bring up the past? Why do you have to mention anything negative of the past? Well, why do we have the Bible then? The Bible is full of evil men and their evil deeds. The Bible is full of it. In fact, the Bible tells us that we ought to learn from all of these evil men and the evil things that they say and do. It says in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Now these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. We should not crave evil things as they also craved. The evil incidents are in the Bible to remind us of evil, sinful, depraved, corrupt human nature so that we not repeat what they did and receive the righteous judgment of God for what they did. To avoid and avert the righteous judgment of God. We better not do the same as they did. That's the point of the Bible. And that's also of the daily Christian life. We are not saying this contrary to our critics. We're not saying this because we're being spiteful, vengeful. This is not retaliation. No, this is instruction. This is edification. This is warning, admonition. That's what this is, for us to learn from these examples and better not ever repeat them, because if we do, we are under the judgment of God, the righteous, eternal judgment of God. We shouldn't do it, nor the others that we share the gospel with. They should not do it. Nobody should be doing this in any local church, not anything like this whatsoever. Now, what we share, we submit to you in the spirit of 1 Timothy 4.16. 1 Timothy 4.16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. For as you do so, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. The pastor is supposed to pay close attention to himself and his teaching, how he lives and how he preaches and teaches. 
what he says. He ought to pay very careful attention to it because it will ensure salvation for himself and for those who hear him. This means we're dealing with grave matters, serious matters that nobody should take lightly. What we present is not a matter of a mild disagreement. What we present is not a matter of, you have your way, I have my way, let's just go on our happy way. We'll both meet in heaven someday. That's not the way it is. He says in 1 Timothy 4.16, it's a matter of salvation. Salvation. They always say, no, it's not an issue of salvation. They say, it's not an issue of salvation. No, no, I am saved. But it is an issue of salvation, according to 1 Timothy 4.16. Moreover, what should all of the hearers do with the information provided in this conference? It says what we should do in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 to 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 to 22. But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. This is our obligation to do so. It's also mentioned in first or Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, 11 to 14. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, and we read verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. We must, by the solid food of the word, have our senses trained to discern good and evil. It is by nourishment of the solid food of the word. Not a superficial, not a fickle adherence to the word, but a substantial, solid understanding of the word of God, the solid food of the word of God, and its application for our discernment, because it's for our souls. We must know the difference between good and evil. Also, 1 John 4, 1. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Well, why do you have to say this? Why do you have to say that? Why do you have to, to detract from what that famous preacher says? He's a very popular pastor. He's written many books. That professor, he has a position in the university, in the seminary. Why do you have to be so contrary? Well, we're not being contrary. Somebody brought it to our attention and we're commenting on it based on God's word. We're trying not to believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. We're not scouring the internet. We're not in our pajamas in our dark and dingy, dirty basement in the house of our mother on the computer looking for false teachers. That's not how it happens. That's not how it happens. 
people bring these things to our attention, then we comment on it. And when we comment on it, we are testing the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many. And verse 6, 4, 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Somebody is from God. Who is from God? The apostle says we are from God. And those who hold to the apostolic teaching are also from God. If we are consistent with the doctrine of the holy apostles, delivered or inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, then we are also from God. And he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. It's plain. It's black and white. It's the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is how we can know the difference between the truth and error. A few words on our procedure. There will be a message. This is just the introduction. There will be a message, and we have five hours set aside for that, two hours this evening, three hours tomorrow, five hours for a message, approximately 45 minutes. We'll have about five minutes of Pastor Jerry Jackson and I here uh, discussing, or he might reiterate something, or he might ask a question. We'll have a, a few minutes of interaction, about five. We'll take a break after this first hour. And what will we cover? There are four major headers that we will cover in this conference. Number one, is conflict inevitable? Is conflict inevitable? Number two, scripture. Why is it that all of these detractors, false believers, heretics, rarely or never use scripture? No scripture. Then the third is a threefold designation, lies, instigation, and separation. They present lies, they instigate, that is, they begin the conflict, and then they walk away from us. They walk away from us. It's not we walking away from them, they walk away from us. And then lastly, the fourth one, which will be in the last hour tomorrow afternoon, the reprobate actually contend with God. These reprobates are not actually fighting us. They're actually fighting God Almighty. We are merely his spokesman. Then, also in terms of clarification and procedure, I shall present a brief proposition, a brief statement, a brief thesis. And when I explain the reasons or explain the proof or the evidence to support the proposition, I will go in the canonical order of Scripture. Now, that will be for the sake of you following more easily. Instead of going from Revelation to Ephesians to Isaiah back and forth like that, we're going to go as we present the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Okay, we'll take that approach after having explained the proposition and you will see, as we plainly and clearly read the scriptures, that these scriptures support the assertions that we make in the proposition. And also, we shall illustrate 
we shall illustrate sometimes by verbatim quotes of these unbelievers. Sometimes it will be verbatim quotes, and sometimes it will be recounting incidents that we have both experienced. And this will be for the sake of illustration. You need to know that people are actually this way. They do actually say, and they do actually do, the things that we have experienced. That's the purpose of the illustrations. Also, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Son of the Father, before all eternity, He and the Father and the Spirit decreed that He would come into the world to die for the elect, to save the elect from their sins by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. He would pay the penalty, the eternal judgment deserved to the elect. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would pay their sins, pay for their sins. And this is what the saints or the Christians of the Old Testament believed. That's what we ought to believe, and that's what everybody should believe who is to be saved that Jesus died and rose again for his sins. And the grace of God that changes the heart, grants faith, also grants repentance, so that there is a lifelong pursuit by the power of the grace of God, a lifelong pursuit of repentance. Faith and repentance begin from the moment of conversion after God has changed the dead, stony human heart. And then we shall one day meet the Lord face to face and enjoy his presence forever. This is the gospel everyone ought to believe. This is the plain and simple true gospel. Any deviation from it is heresy. Any deviation from it is false. Any deviation from it leads to eternal punishment. Let us believe in this gospel. Shall we now have a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. And thank you, Lord, for endowing us, for blessing us, in, uh, infilling us with your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that we understand these truths by your grace, because of the Spirit of grace and of supplication, who has been poured out upon us to grant us new life, to grant us faith and repentance. And thank you, Lord, that you have given us a love of your holy and righteous word, the living and abiding word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. Do not let us, Lord, be distracted and tossed about by waves, by the trickery and deceitful scheming of men, may we not do so, but may we closely adhere to your word. May your word be precious to us, sweeter than honey, more precious than gold, more valuable than our daily necessary food. Grant that to us, Lord, to each one here who listens. We pray, Lord, that you'll be present with us to bless our time and our fellowship. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
Our first topic is related to conflict. Is conflict inevitable? Is it impossible to avoid? And the answer is yes. Conflict is indeed inevitable. It is inevitable. We should not be shocked. We should not be discouraged, demoralized. We should not fret. We should not be anxious. Nothing like this should take place. Nothing whatsoever like this should take place. Why? Because of God's sovereign purposes in the elect and in the reprobate. This conflict, the reason for conflict, has to do with God's purposes in the elect and in the reprobate. God has purposes for the righteous and the unrighteous. God has purposes for the believer and the unbeliever in conflict. So if God has ordained, predestined for this to happen, it will certainly happen. There will be difficulties, there will be tribulations, there will be consternation, there will be stress, anxiety. These things will happen because God has ordained it. It's a matter of fact. It's a matter of biblical fact from the very first book of the Bible, from the book of Genesis. Not only is that true, but we'll also find that it's true in man, in men, in the elect, because of our involvement in speaking the truth. When we speak the truth, when we preach the truth, when we share the truth with arguments, with biblical reasoning, biblical logic, biblical words, biblical exhortations, biblical truth claims, when we do it that way, there will be conflict. And God told us to do it, so we shouldn't be surprised. God commanded us to preach the truth, Therefore, if we preach the truth, there will be conflict. And why so? Because of the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always against the truth. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always against the truth. And so when the reprobate, the wicked, the unbelievers, the pretentious believers who say they are Christians, everybody says they're a Christian, everybody says I'm saved, I can't lose my salvation. You can't tell me I'm losing my salvation. They say things like that. Well, the reprobate oppose the truth. If the reprobate oppose the truth, what are they going to do? Are they going to shake their fists? Are they going to climb a tall staircase into heaven and find the invisible God? No. They're going to lash out against us. We are right there. They're going to lash out against us. So inevitably, there will be conflict. For that reason, God's ordination, our speaking of the truth, and then the reprobate undermining the truth that we speak. For these reasons, there will indeed be conflict. Let's see first from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 5. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, 
concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Now this false prophet deserves the death penalty. And why? Because he has enticed the people to follow other gods. And you might say, well, nobody does that today. Well, no, everybody does that today. In fact, 1 John 5, 21 says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And in the whole letter of 1 John, he never once mentions bowing down to an image. He's talking about false doctrine. False doctrine equals idolatry. And it deserved the death penalty here in Deuteronomy 13. And if we don't experience the physical death penalty, there is the eternal death penalty. That's why it's called the second death. And that's forever. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the place of fire and brimstone, the lake of fire. It deserves death. Any detraction from the true knowledge of God is idolatry and deserves death. But why in the world did God do this? He explains in verse 3. For the Lord your God is testing you. God ordains, God orchestrates, God brings false prophets into our life to test us, to see if we will adhere to the truth with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, Acts 11:23 whether we will do that or not. He says so in verse 3. It's on purpose, it's deliberate, it is intentional. God ordains to have many false prophets into the world so that we can be tested. So when they rise up, a false teacher rises up, don't be alarmed, don't be disturbed, don't be troubled. Ask yourself, is what his, is he saying true or not? Let me see what the Word of God says. And when I find that the Word of God contradicts what he says, then he is labeled as a false prophet. One false prophecy, one false doctrine equals false prophet, false teacher. And if you can confront him, confront him. If he repents, good. Then walk on the straight path together after that. But if he doesn't repent, then don't keep listening to him. He's a false prophet a false teacher. And God wants us to follow him and fear him to keep all of his commandments. Verses 4 and 5 say. And this is applicable, verses 6 to 11, even to those in our own household. And then verses 12 to 18, also applicable to those in our neighborhoods, in our cities and towns. It applies to anybody and everybody, both near and far. Proverbs chapter 17. 
Is this necessary? Is it necessary for God to keep doing this? Yes, according to Proverbs 17, 15. Proverbs 17, 15. Where he says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. He who justifies the wicked. Okay then, when a conflict arises, when a disagreement arises, when a false doctrine arises, then we have to determine who's righteous and who's wicked. If we side with the wicked, we are an abomination to the Lord. And if we condemn the righteous in the conflict, we are also an abomination to the Lord. And anyone who is an abomination to the Lord goes to the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 8, 21, 27, and 22, 14, and 15. Anyone who is an abomination goes to hell. That means we have to have discernment, like it said in Hebrews 5, 14, and 1 John 4, 1, and 4, 6. We must practice this discernment constantly so that we never justify the wicked and condemn the righteous. Never. Now, a few New Testament passages. A few New Testament passages. In our audience, this is unnecessary, but critics and skeptics will listen, and they'll say, well, you're just quoting the Old Testament, and the Old Testament, that's different. Well, let's look at the New Testament. The New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11. In the New Testament, after the day of Pentecost, 1 Corinthians is after Acts chapter 2. Canonically and chronologically, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 19. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. He says, there must also be factions among you. Why must? Because it's deliberate by God. It's foreordained by God. And for what purpose here? He says, in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. When the conflict arises, the approved ones rise to the surface. They become evident. They become clear who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And it's necessary for our benefit. Further, we find 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. We read just verse 1 for this point. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times... Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. The Spirit explicitly says, the Holy Spirit is very clear. He is explicit. He is unambiguous. He's making it plain, obvious, 
evident, right? That's what it means to be explicit. What? That some will fall away from the faith. It will happen. He doesn't say it could happen. I wish it didn't happen. He's not saying it in any doubtful way. He's saying some will fall away. Why will they? Because it's foreordained. It's predestined for them to fall away. And it will happen. So if it does happen, then make sure that we not fall away with them, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Further, we find in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, verse 19. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. They left, they departed, they separated from us, they shunned us because they weren't really of us. And how do you know that they are not really of us? He says, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They would have stayed. They would have remained. What were we doing? We were just preaching the truth. What were we doing that was so scandalous to them that they had to walk away from us? What were we doing that was so sinful and evil and wicked, so heinous that they had to leave, up and leave? Why did they up and leave? Because, it says, they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Shown to whom? Shown to the elect, to the true believers, to the righteous, so that we might have more evidence and more assurance that we are on the right path and they are on the wrong path. We are on the narrow way and they are on the broad road of destruction. Matthew 7, 13 to 15. This is the reason, John says. Now, our enemies, our detractors, they say, well, you're saying you're the only true church? No. But we do know what's here, and you're leaving it here, and you're going to a mega church, And you're going to a church that you used to ridicule and mock. You're going to a church whose pastor dresses in football garb, stumbles on the stage, shows movie clips, does acting in the, on the platform. And there are many examples like that. You're going to that kind of a church. So you did leave a church that was preaching the truth and you went to a false church. And that shows that you really were never of us. You didn't remain. These are evidences, a few, there's many more, of God's sovereign purposes in the elect and the reprobate. But remember, the next point we make is that man's involvement what God expects us to do, what he expects the true believers, the elect to do, is to speak the truth with arguments. Speak the truth with arguments, and when we do so, 
There will be persecution. It will definitely happen. John 7, 7. John 7 and verse 7. Our Lord says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The Lord Jesus, he testifies of the wicked world that their deeds are evil, therefore the wicked world rise up in conflict, rise up with hatred toward him, toward Christ. But it's not only Christ, it's also the disciples of Christ, John 15. John 15, 18. John 15, 18 to 21. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Amen. The world hates Christ first, and then it hates us. Why does it hate us? Because of verse 19. We're not of the world, otherwise they would love us. But because we are not of the world, but chosen out of the world, then the world turns against us. They used to love us, now they hate us. And this is expected. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Christ, they will persecute us. If they keep the word of Christ, they will keep our word. Right. Look at that. Amen. See how Christ equates what we say that corresponds to Scripture? It equates to the word of Christ. To the extent that we are faithfully and accurately preaching the word of Christ, if they hate us, if they persecute us, they are persecuting Christ, or they would have also persecuted him, because we're not greater than our master. We are the slave, he is the master. They will do it because of the name of Christ, and they will also do it because they do not know the one who sent me. They love to walk away and say, I'm saved, I know I'm going to heaven, I know Jesus loves me. They walk away saying things like that. I know God. God loves me. But Jesus says, no, they do not know the one who sent me. They do not know God the Father, and they don't even take the name of Christ up faithfully, but take it up in vain. That's what they're doing, and it shows why. Because of their hatred toward us as we faithfully preach and practice the truth. They actually hate Christ and actually hate God the Father. They are haters, though they claim to be lovers of God. And this continues 
the example we find, we'll find in the book of Second Timothy, Second Timothy three and verse twelve. Second Timothy three twelve. And indeed, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What is the cause? What is the basis of the persecution? Living a godly life. Being holy. Being righteous. Rejecting sin and wickedness. Preaching against it. Living against it. Encouraging others. Warning others against sin. When we do so, then the wicked world and the false brothers in the churches will persecute us. He says, will be persecuted, which is another for ordination, verse 2. It will certainly happen, and it happens to us as we are living for Christ. It will happen because we're preaching the truth, the preaching the truth of Christ. And also, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter Four, verses 1 to 8, but we, we read verses 1 to 4 to make our point. Verses 1 to 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, Pre be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The solemn charge, not only for the apostles and the prophets in Christ, but to Timothy, which means to all pastors, they like to say, well, Jesus could say that, but we can't. The apostles could say those words, but we can't say those words. No. It says it right here. Timothy, the pastor, and all other pastors. Aren't these letters called the pastoral epistles throughout church history? Pastoral epistles? Pastoral letters? So that pastors might see the way pastors are supposed to conduct their ministry? They're called that. Why is it then that when the pastor is supposed to exhort, and it says right there, rebuke, uh, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, why is it when they do that, then the enemies of the gospel rise up against that pastor and say, you can't say that, you're wrong, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't believe that, my God would never do that, my God would never say that. That's not the God I worship. That's what they say. And then what do they do? They accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths because we're speaking the truth. Therefore, there will be opposition. If we speak the truth, inevitably, there will be opposition. And our last point on this matter has to do with the reprobate opposing the truth. 
Now that we have seen already in these verses, both from Deuteronomy onward, that the reprobate have done so and will do so. But let's see also a few more places. One we find in 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18, 16 to 18. 1 Kings 18, 16. So Obadiah went to Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab, wicked Ahab, evil Ahab. Ahab, who had a fake repentance in 1 Kings 21. This Ahab sees Elijah after a while and says, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? You are the troubler, Elijah. You are the instigator, Elijah. You are the one that's rising up against me. You started this conflict. That's what wicked Ahab is saying to Elijah. But Elijah corrects him. He says in verse 18, and he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and worshiped idols. You are the troubler because you first forsook the Lord and worshiped idols, and then I came along and called on you to repent, and now you're blaming me for attacking you. But you started the conflict by straying from the words of God. Then I came along to call you to repent, because if you repent, then there will be forgiveness of sins. But you refuse to repent for the forgiveness of sins, and now you're blaming me for being too mean, for speaking too harshly. Can't you, have, can't you have some winsomeness and charm in what you say? Yes, our enemies have said that. If you would just present it with charm and winsomeness, then more people would listen to you. Is there a verse in the Bible that calls us to do that? To be charming and winsome? No. Another place where we find that this is inevitable is in the book of John. John chapter 3. John 3, verse 19. John 3, 19. 19 to 21. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Judgment comes on the evil men. Why? Because light is in the world. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. Darkness first, light second. That's what happened in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 as an illustration of the evil deeds of men. There is darkness first, then light comes into the room, 
And the darkness says, no, 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 walk away, go away, I don't want to see this light. They are like the wild nocturnal animals of the forest. They don't want the light of day. When they have the light of day, they close their eyes. They go under the shade of the trees. They stay away and go to sleep. But when it's nighttime, they are on the prowl because they are wild, vicious, ferocious animals. That's the way evildoers are. They hate the light. They don't go around in the light. They don't bask in the light. They don't love the warmth of the light. Instead, they hate the light. They do, don't come to the light because they don't want their deeds exposed. Evildoers. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 8. We'll pick it up at verse 4. We'll read 4 to 12, but specifically it's verse 8. Who is the opposer? Who is the instigator? Who is the one distracting and detracting from the truth? Who is doing it? 13.4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for thus his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Paul is preaching the gospel to this official in the government. This man, Bar-Jesus or Elymas, he's a magician, he's a false prophet, a Jewish false prophet, who should know better than to contradict the words of Paul because it's based on scripture. He has no shame to contradict the Apostle Paul preaching the truth from Scripture, no shame. He contradicts him. So who is opposing the truth? Who is instigating it? Why couldn't he, Elymas, just stay calm and quiet? Why was he so agitated when he was listening to Paul and Silas, uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas preach? Why was he so agitated? Why was he so irritated? Did he not have any self-control? Where was his patience? Where was his self-control? Where was his long-suffering? Where was his kindness? Where was his love and grace toward Paul? Nowhere. Because he was so enthralled and entrapped by his fleshly lust to hate the truth, 
he started a conflict right there to make sure or to try to make sure that the proconsul, the official of the government, did not believe what Paul was saying. And what does Paul do? He doesn't take him aside. Friend, let's, let's go aside. Let's go, let's go find a restaurant and let's go so eat, eat some good food. And I want to have a dialogue with you. Just a conversation. Just a conversation. Just a dialogue as friends. We're not enemies. We're not enemies. We're friends. We're in this together. We're both Jews. We're both Jews. So we're in this together. So let's just have a dinner and, and I'll pay for it. It's on me. Did anything like that happen here? No. Immediately, the apostle knew who was in the right and who was in the wrong, and he confronted the wrongdoer right there to his face with a good result in this case. What was that? The proconsul believed. There was a confirmation by the miracle, the message that the apostle preached. Is conflict inevitable? Yes. The Lord does indeed expect us to discern who is righteous and who is wicked. We are not trying to pick fights, start arguments. We're not trying to do that. We are trying to quote and preach the scripture. And our enemies, they hate it. They rarely, if ever, bring up scripture. And when they rarely do, Inevitably, they take it out of context. This is proven again and again and again. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.